Hi, this is Father Bill W. Welcome to the podcast. I'm an Episcopal priest in long-term recovery living here in Austin, Texas. And I would invite you, if you haven't done so already, to uh, go to our website. It's titled Two-Way Prayer. And there you can learn about the process of prayer and meditation that they did in the early days of uh, our 12-step programs and lots of information about the pioneers and that kind of thing. And also, uh, again, if you haven't done it, uh, try to attend one of our workshops. I'm doing one every month uh, uh, on a different subject. Uh, I either do two-way prayer, uh, which I think is the next one coming up, yes. And then the following month, I'll do the history of the 12 steps to, to go a little bit deeper. I'm really interested in, in both the history and the psychology and the deeper elements of spirituality that underlie the 12-step program. So uh, kind of uh, dig deeper is, is sort of my, my motto. And um, so we're in this series, we are doing um, uh, a book, we're looking at a book called Transformation by Robert A. Johnson. And Johnson, he was helpful to me in terms of understanding Carl Jung. Jung is not easy to read. And Johnson makes him very approachable. So I stumbled onto him uh, many years ago. He introduced me to that inner world. And that's what I'm hoping this series will help people uh, come to appreciate a little bit more. And the transformation element, of course, is really important. That, that's the, the, the psychic change, the inner transformation that each of us is looking to find in recovery. Now, Johnson approaches this by using different characters from, from literature. So he's, he's analyzing, I think that's fair to say, kind of analyzing consciousness from the perspective of Don Quixote, which is simple consciousness or two-dimensional consciousness, Hamlet, which is three-dimensional or complex consciousness. And then in our next episode, we're going to get to Faust, which uh, introduces four-dimensional consciousness or kind of an enlightened kind of consciousness. And here, here's a part of Johnson's introduction to the book that I think is uh, perhaps helpful. He says, every man is somewhere on this journey and it is of immeasurable help to know where you are on the scale of evolution, to mistake one's position might be to take medicine that is inappropriate and possibly fatal. He goes on, almost all of us in Western society are hamlets, compulsory education, our social structure, the dictates of our lifestyle have obliterated the two-dimensional man from American life. He lives in our passion for American Indian stories, in the novels of ethnic New York, and in our devotion to the cowboy. Except as pathology, he's rarely seen on our streets in adult form. Johnson says, teenagers for a brief time live in between these worlds and they can access both dimensions. But he comments, we, we, we make our teenagers grow up fast. And, and we drive this ability uh, out of them. Uh, grow up, kid, <laughs> put it behind you, you know? So Johnson, Johnson asks, 
how does a man survive if he's caught in the Hamlet dilemma? The more intelligent he is, the more profound will be his suffering. He counsels the two avenues of solace are available. He may keep some small point of contact with a simple, warm, uncomplicated world by maintaining a bit of primitive behavior in his life. At best, this can be jogging, camping, engaging in locker room banter, having an array of adolescent equipment, including that which is most dear to every man's heart, his car. <laughs> so unlike Don Quixote, uh, we looked at in the last episode, modern man and many modern women too are stuck in three-dimensional or complex consciousness. And this is where we find the character of Hamlet. Hamlet is stuck, his story in a nutshell. His father, the king, has been killed by Hamlet's uncle. The ghost of his father visits him and demands that Hamlet seek revenge. The uncle takes the throne and even marries Hamlet's mother. The uncle surely deserves to die. Any red-blooded man, any two-dimensional man would just do it, to quote Nike, you know, just do it. But Hamlet suffers from a fatal flaw. He thinks, he broods, he's complicated. <laughs> now, uh, with that, I wanna introduce a, a new friend of mine. His name is David B, uh, coming from uh, Los Angeles. California. And I invited David uh, to join me in doing this episode because he made the fatal mistake of writing and telling me that he was enjoying this series and that he actually had a background in acting, in theater, and in recovery. So what I did was I took it to my two-way prayer that morning uh, and I had the guidance that uh, maybe David could help us dig into the mind of Hamlet because he knows both of these worlds. So welcome aboard, David. You don't Thanks. know what you just got yourself into, brother. I really don't, Julian. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, and sharing your experience, hope, and, and theatrical insights with us. And I wonder if maybe you could just share a little bit of your recovery and, and how, how that overlaps with your professional life with our listeners, okay? Sure. Thank you, Bill. Well, I've been in recovery about 18 months, and uh, it led me one way or another via various readings to Robert Johnson's Transformation and your podcast. So I was an avid listener to episode one, and, you know, by hook and by crook, here we are on episode two together. So I'm very that's grateful. The way, that's the way this thing works. I know, right? Yes, yeah. we, we don't plan it, but it happens. So thank you for all that you do, Bill, because it's really inspiring, and uh, it's, you know, given a lot of solace to me, and I know many others. I... Uh, yeah, I, I was kind of um, uh, hooked on the theater from a young age. When I was in high school, I started acting and uh, in university, I followed that up with writing and directing and so on at that time in the UK. And then I moved to the United States about uh, 25 years ago now. Um, and I've been a practitioner ever since in the world of the stage, uh, opera. Um, I have a particular interest in clowning in the circus. So that's been a great love and a passion of mine. 
and I've always, um, even as a as a sort of truculent teenager, had um, an interest in Shakespeare, which has only grown over the years. And so, lo and behold, it just felt like Johnson's book, and then by you know, by extension, your podcast was a really wonderful place to come and spend some time thinking and investigating how these things relate to recovery. Because I think that Hamlet actually really does. It's a, it's an inspired choice. Yeah, have you have you uh, produced the play, acted in no, the play? No, it's a, it's a very deep ambition of mine to produce Hamlet. Oh. I've directed about six or seven of Shakespeare's plays, and I have taught Hamlet on many uh, occasions because I have a whole strain of my life in education. Uh, but I've never actually produced it, so I'm longing to do so, and um, I have all kinds of great ideas for my production. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe this will add to it. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I suspect it will. We'll, we'll get Hamlet going to a 12-step program. That, that <laughs> might just solve all of his, uh, all of his difficulties. Take time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, so what, what, uh, what I'd like to do, uh, David, is read a few selections from Johnson's treatment of Hamlet and, and then try going a bit deeper into his character. And I guess what I'm interested in pursuing here for our listeners is, is how we get stuck in our recovery. In other words, how we can relate to Hamlet in our own consciousness. Mm -hmm. And Johnson writes this, he says, to understand Hamlet is to gain invaluable insight into the emptiness and loneliness of modern existential life. Hamlet is three-dimensional man. He has no roots in the instinctive world and his head is not yet in the heavens where he can gain the nourishment of enlightenment. He cannot make up his mind whether to follow the dictates of custom and its barbaric solutions or to listen to the enlightenment of his own soul and conscience. He does neither, and finally he loses the value of both. So Hamlet is stuck. He's not able to be simple, two-dimensional like Don Quixote, and he's not ready to be enlightened, four-dimensional like we'll see in Faust. To thine own self be true is the, is the quote, but I think the truth is he doesn't know who he is. Mm -hmm. Doesn't know where that truth lies. And, and that's where uh, he suffers terribly. So uh, does that seem to fit your understanding of the character? Very much so. Yeah, very much so. Um, I think it's uh, accurate to say that Hamlet is still the best known play in the world uh -huh. and uh, close to being the most produced play in the world. And there has to be a reason that this particular character um, is so magnetic to us and has been this way for centuries now. Mm -hmm. And in my uh, thinking that that reason is connected to this very basic premise which Hamlet manifests so clearly and that is that we all of us struggle with some kind of an inner conflict the very the very um, opposing forces that can in fact get us stuck and unclear how to move forward I suspect that's part of what they call the human condition right? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> Most definitely. Been struggling so, with that one for 77 years now. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So one of the things I, I really like to explore about the character of Hamlet 
starts with the very minimal backstory that we're given about him. We know he's a prince and that um, we know his father has been killed. Some, uh, 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 an ingredient that's not often followed is the fact that Hamlet is a student when we first meet him. Mm. Not, just, uh, not just an average student, but he's actually enrolled at the University of Wittenberg which at Shakespeare's time was a, was a known educational institution with a particular emphasis on the study of philosophy. Unlike the Laurence Olivier film, if you've ever encountered it, um, where the great British actor portrays Hamlet as a kind of a, um, you know, a, a Shakespearean era Usain Bolt, you know, ready to run at 100 miles an hour at any problem that materializes. I think Shakespeare's Hamlet is actually a bit of a bookworm. You know, he's, uh, he's a student, he's, um, uh, uh, he's very knowledgeable, he loves to talk and he loves to think, as I'm sure we'll discuss more later. He's quite unlike his father, the, the dead king, the king that was murdered, was a warrior and a very uh, powerful one. Um, but Hamlet comes across as a little bit of an intellectual. So I always like to pose this question. If you could imagine yourself in his shoes with a little satchel and some little round glasses and a few books tucked under your arm and then imagine that the ghost of your father shows up and says hey um i, I don't mean to you know interrupt your flow but i was just murdered by your uncle um, and you have to do something about it then we can immediately you know imagine that this rather innocent uh, brainiac is going to be highly challenged by his new destiny which is to uh, avenge the murder of his father and there it is, there's the split that takes Hamlet in two opposing directions at one time. He likes to read, he likes to think, he likes to philosophize. Right. And on the other hand, now he's been charged with becoming a man of action. Somewhere deep down, I think he knows he needs to do it. But his innate student, his bibliophile, his inner bibliophile, is not very well suited to this mission. And consequently, um, it's the play is four hours long, as I like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's very sensitive. Extremely sensitive. Extremely sensitive. Uh, you know, they sometimes they say addicts uh, don't feel, and, and I understand that end of things. But I think for many of us, it's we feel too intensely, mm. and and feeling is very painful, and so we try to shut it down. That's right. I think. That's but right. going on inside is the turmoil. That's right. Yeah. Mm. And, and uh, going back to the magnetic appeal of Hamlet's character, I, I believe I've read somewhere that Hamlet says the most things directly to an audience of any character in any play ever, by which I mean that the amount of time he spends simply talking to the listener um, is really quite astonishing. All of those great monologues and soliloquies, yeah. some of which are so famous. And it's the it's the um, inner monologue that that sort of rambling sort of you know mental journey that he's on, which we get to witness. And although hopefully our fathers haven't been murdered, we certainly recognize what it feels like to talk and explore and investigate and you know second guess and yeah. re-examine and all of that stuff. And I think quite a lot of that sort of mental confusion comes from that sensitivity that you're talking about. There was a sign in early AA, in my case, when I came into the program, on the wall that said, think, think, think. I wanted to tear it down. That's all I'm doing is thinking, thinking, yeah. thinking. I want to I shut it off. Hamlet uh, seems to be able to be incapable of imagining 
four-dimensional, or he can imagine four-dimensional quality of wholeness, eh? but he can't reach it. He, 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 he thinks it's there, it's, it's out there, but I can't quite get to it. And Jung makes a very big deal about this uh, three-dimensional versus four-dimensional. Um, and it's interesting uh, for the big book folks out there, you know, we talk about four-dimensional consciousness. You know, we were entered into a fourth dimension of our existence. And that's where we're heading, but we're stuck in three. So that's, that's a nice way to, four for him is wholeness, it's completeness. And it includes the feminine, the feeling function that Jung often sees missing in modern man's consciousness. Hamlet is tortured inside, split, divided. It's so painful that he's, he's uh, almost on the verge of contemplating suicide. You know, to be or not to be, is, is, that, is that what that's getting at uh, in that line? Yeah, it is, although I often find that, that that famous line, perhaps the most famous line in all of dramatic literature, is sometimes a little bit taken out of context. Mm. He's certainly looking at living or dying, but his specific circumstance is as follows. Either he lives in his mind and suffers and does nothing, or he takes arms against a sea of troubles, as he says, and he actually goes into action and he risks death because the highest likelihood of him avenging his father's murder is that he himself will also be killed. So to be or not to be, in my um, viewing of, the, of yes. that speech in that moment, it's really about weighing up the distinction between inaction and but mental suffering on the one hand and action and risk on the other which which is what inaction brings mm -hmm. is, that, exactly. is that not right yeah exactly yeah he, he, hamlet describes it and there's an absolutely gorgeous quote at the end of the to be or not to be speech which is less well known but i think perhaps even more devastating he says and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought. The very determination that we may have to take action is sicklied over, is diseased by the act of thinking. That's interesting. Uh, another writer talking about these three dimensions of or levels of consciousness talks about red-blooded consciousness. Oh, sure. And then as you mentioned, pale-blooded yes. consciousness. That's, see, that's what he's talking about here, exactly. Oh. Absolutely. Pale-blooded. And then the fourth dimension is gold-blooded. Wow. Gold. What, does that, what does that entail? Well, that's another Robert Johnson book that we'll have to do someday. Okay. Uh, it's called Inner Gold. Wow. I mean, the whole purpose of digging into ourselves is to find the gold, you know, uh, which is buried in our shadow. I mean, we're afraid to become the wonderful people is in each and every one of us, you know, waiting to come out, but we're too stuck, too timid, too lost uh, to reach in and grab it and bring it forth, to act. Right, and as Johnson said in, in the quote that you mentioned earlier, we're too intelligent, you know, so much, yeah. so much time activating our cerebral function, sort of straightforward, basic uh, instincts towards goodness and good deeds. Yeah, so instead of, uh, this is flown right into uh, some of my notes here. So he, he refuses to act, and instead of acting, he thinks, mm -hmm. and he's stuck in his head, and he's drowning in an endless sea of thought. 
asked by one of the characters, what is it you read? Hamlet responds, words, words, words. Johnson writes, three-dimensional men are often caught in words and hesitant to act. He cites a critic who sees these lines uh, as, quote, the deeply tragic meaning of the play. The critic says, it is in fact the secret of Hamlet's character, the cause of the tragedy. Hamlet is a zenless man whose energy, like a mouse in a wheel, goes round and round inside him and issues not in action, but in talking. Mm-hmm. Words, words, words. Oh, it's, it's beautifully uh, constructed the way he writes about it. I wanted to share uh, a couple of things about what happens in the play that relate directly to this point. You know, when the ghost uh, of his father first tells Hamlet that he has in fact been murdered, he's the victim of a murder, Hamlet's immediate reaction would shave at least three hours off the play if you <laughs> follow it through. Because he says, uh, in speaking of this murder, uh, Hamlet says to his father, haste me to know it, in other words, tell me more about it, that I, with wings as swift as meditation or the thoughts of love, may sweep to my revenge. Mm. He immediately catches what his destiny is supposed to be. Check in with him, you know, uh, a couple of acts later, and he's still (laughs) talking about it. Um, And he knows he's doing it as well, which I think is part of the curse that Johnson is referring to. It's not just that we get stuck in thought, but that we actually have an awareness that we're stuck in thought, which only exacerbates the problem. And I suspect that's something that really plagues a lot of us in recovery as well. Yeah. What Um, is it that I hear so often people saying about a young man or woman in recovery? They have so much potential. They're just full of potential but won't act (laughs) or act out, act out instead of acting. Instead of acting. Yeah. Well, Hamlet says uh, as he, as he kind of grapples with the fact that he's getting increasingly mired in his own thinking process, Mm. he calls himself out on it or he tries to, he says, why, what an ass am I? This is most brave that I, the son of a dear father murdered prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell must like a whore unpack my heart with words and you know that devastating phrase is telling us that the heart is not actually you know the center of his intention and his journey he's starting to move that center into words and thinking instead yes i I shouldn't go here but i will look to where a man commits suicide if he blows his brains out if he blows his where does he shoot himself Mm. where's the pain Mm. registering inside of his bodies. I mean, we all carry it and, uh, and it localizes itself. Mm. And scary, of course, very scary. It's very scary, it is. Uh, this is dangerous stuff. So I, I think what's going on with Hamlet, correct me if I'm wrong, is you know, the way I would frame, frame it is there's no juice mm. coming into, into him. The fourth dimension uh, is not flowing not flowing into him you know uh, and that's one of the trickster elements i guess of uh, of addiction is it it promises that it delivers that in the beginning to some degree but then less and less and less most of us and in my case i stopped drinking uh the fun went out of my drinking 
uh, a long while before I quit. I, I drank not to feel good, but to not feel, you know, and I think for many of us, that's whatever the addictions might be, they are there in lieu of feeling, in lieu of going through, helping us stay stuck. Right, and I, that was something I found so clear in, in your prior series on William James, that the notion that you know addiction starts with this yearning for some kind of transcendental experience. Yes, Sometimes yes. delivers it initially. Yes. Uh, only for it to diminish quite rapidly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, over time. So. Oh, I won a bottle of wine at a church bazaar. And that was my first drunk. <laughs> I was 12 years old. I remember the number that I bet on when I spun the wheel. I mean, it, it was so impactful. It was, it was a spiritual experience, you know, uh, <laughs> and I wanted more of that. Uh, so that, you know, I don't think we get addicted to things that don't feel good at some level. I always tell people, if you get addicted to things that don't feel good, you're very sick and I can't help you. <laughs> but if you get addicted to something that feels good, that fulfills some sort of a, a missing need, even though it's in a distorted way, then you're in the right place. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned something also that Johnson quoted at the beginning, uh, which I think is very telling. Uh, you, you, uh, Johnson describes Hamlet's predicament as existential in nature. Yes. And uh, without necessarily having all the academic background to make the following statement, I think of existentialism as condition without spirituality. Right. And so, you know, the, the yearning, if you like, to achieve something that has that quality of spiritual transcendence is, I think, where we do a lot of our replacing in, in an effort to get there, but as you said, through distorted means. Yes, absolutely. Lots of stuckness that we could, uh, hmm. you know, relate to the back and forth. Uh, uh, I, I recall, you know, am I really an alcoholic? Step one, you know. Yeah. Uh, can I not do some drinking? I, I, I had a thing that, uh, <laughs> you know, they're, they're trying to get me into the program. And, uh, and I said, well, listen, you know, if, uh, if my son dies, I'm drinking. Let's be clear. <laughs> the guy said, Bill, you're not married and you don't have a son. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I, I still got it all figured out. Got it figured out. Eh? Uh, step three, the indecision that goes along with that. You know, do I really turn my life and will over? What's that about? Step five, you know, everything. I got to lay everything out here, you know, uh, so that, I mean, the opportunities for stuckness oh, in man. the program on this way to transformation. And then, of course, uh, another element of, of Hamlet is that addiction is a family disease. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it seems like everybody who gets around this individual gets caught up in the madness, don't they? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a deep theme in the play. Uh, Shakespeare sometimes signals uh, his themes by the use of repetitive words and phrases in, in different plays. And obviously the, those themes change according to which play you're looking at. But in Hamlet, mm -hmm. it's corruption and rottenness. So, you know, it's a very famous line in, in, yeah. in, in Hamlet, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. And you have this image of disease, dis-ease or rottenness or corruption that just runs through 
so many different strains of the play. And of course, yeah, ends up taking quite a lot of the population of this play uh, to their graves. You know, it has very, very severe consequences. Johnson makes a point also about the women who are watching him. And I, that, that rang a bell with me too. Uh, old girlfriends that I had and things like that. And I'm stuck in my alcoholism and I'm not really able to relate to them. You know, yeah. I'm not yeah. able to, to be present for them. Well, there's a very telling moment um, approximately halfway through, maybe a third of the way through the play where Hamlet tries to, uh, tries to really expel his girlfriend or his beloved yeah. um, and tells her to get her to a nunnery. He tries to kind of get her to just depart the scene because he knows that he's going down into himself and down and down and it's probably right. not going to end very well. Unfortunately, she doesn't take his advice and she goes mad and dies herself. So mm -hmm. um, she doesn't escape the net. There but, was no Al-Anon in Denmark? Uh, I don't believe oh. that's <laughs> <laughs> not quite yet no. get thee to an Alanon <laughs> <laughs> much sounder advice it would be <laughs> okay the final uh, quote in, in, in Johnson's chapter uh, I think it sums things up pretty well he writes um, Hamlet is the man of nobility and partial consciousness who sees a vision of the meaning of life but he's not strong enough or complete enough to bring that vision into focus. He is wise enough to see, but not strong enough to accomplish. He is caught between vision and practicality and fails in both regards. He is the prototype of so many modern men who see a noble world in their imaginations, but don't have the means to accomplish it. Hamlet fails, but Johnson says, he fails so that Faust might begin where he left off. And that's where we'll pick up in the next episode. And uh, in studying your bio, bio you've uh, dabbled in Faust. I have, I've dabbled <laughs> in, I certainly have. I've dabbled in Christopher Marlowe's Faust, which okay. the play is called Dr. Faustus. Yeah. And it's actually very instructive to see the distinction between Marlowe's uh, rendering of that story and Goethe's because Marlowe's is is very negative and Faust ends up being dragged down to hell yeah by the devil whereas uh, in Goethe the, the the culmination is almost the very opposite so it's it's fascinating it did occur to me to say uh, it's such a glorious connection that Johnson makes between Hamlet uh, this line, Hamlet fails, but he fails so that Faust might begin where he left off. Right. That thought took me to the last couple of pages of the play Hamlet. And I was reminded that there's this extraordinary distinction between the final words of Hamlet, uh, the, the stuck man who, you yeah. know, who is sort of driven to his own death by, by his inability to take action, and his friend Horatio, who stands by him, like uh, like a kind of an innocent watching all of this terrible stuff take place. Right. Hamlet's last four words are, the rest is silence. That's what he says, the rest mm. is silence. And I don't know about you, uh, Bill, but for me, there isn't a great deal of a sense that those words are going to take Hamlet yonder into an Elysian field uh, of forgiveness and ascension. The, the rest is silence seems to me like an existential statement, actually, as if to say, 
now it's over and it will stay over forever. But Horatio's response to right. that is as follows. He says, now cracks a noble heart. Good night, sweet prince. And then he says this sentence, which is almost the, the launching point for our discussion of, or any discussion of Faust. He says, and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. So Shakespeare takes us from the character who says the rest is silence. In other words, death is a closed door and it's over to this other character who, who's living and breathing and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest, you know, very clear indications of redemption and, and the afterlife. Pretty amazing uh, counterpoint right there at the very, on the last few lines of the play. Yes, yes. Well, uh, Johnson makes the point of that uh, so beautifully that, that just like with Don Quixote, mm. when he's dying, mm. he gets it for mm. a moment. Yeah. And, 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 and the same is true with Hamlet, I guess through Horatio. And I wonder if Horatio couldn't be seen as a, kind of the wise old man mm. inside each of us, mm. uh, who's there telling us, pushing us, prompting us, pulling us towards something better. Mm. We can grasp it. Well, I suspect there's truth to that for sure. And it also reminds me that connection that Hamlet sadly can't ever manage by himself. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's it's kind of the message we get uh, at the uh, at the beginning of recovery. Mm. Uh, it's presented to us. It is possible. We see people who have it. Can we move through our life towards it, or are we going to be a tragedy ourselves yeah. and 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 drop out and not? Uh, not do the work, the work of transformation. Long, and half of it's just staying put. <laughs> <laughs> it's not brilliant insight. It's keeping your butt in the seat long enough for, for the change to happen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, right. uh, Hamlet took how many acts? Uh, five acts. Uh, as I say, it five takes acts. about four hours and 20 minutes to perform. Well, I did a hell of a lot longer than Hamlet, so uh, <laughs> I'm going to cut the boy some slack. <laughs> <laughs> you made it beyond the, you made it beyond five acts. Good for you. <laughs> right. 50 um, years. Yeah. Son of a gun. Uh, well, listen, uh, David, any final thoughts on the uh, Oh, on I just, this one, young I, man? As a history buff, I can't resist sharing this one thought that connects to our discussion just now about spirituality. You know, mm. this play was written at a time when the contemporary world surrounding Shakespeare was torn apart by a civil war that was based on the distinctions between religious practices. Right. And um, dig deep and you'll find that England was kind of a police state at that time in which Catholics were being ruthlessly hunted down and at the very least prosecuted and more, more often than that much worse so um it just occurs to me as as you presented this um this wonderful opportunity to have a discussion about hamlet it occurred to me to wonder whether religion itself was a very tainted topic for shakespeare and his contemporaries that it really was it really was the vessel for a lot of violence and conflict and spirituality is not really present in Hamlet, actually, until that last line that we just talked about. It's a, it's a terribly, sadly, um, uh, cruelly, it's, a, it's, it's really a very secular play. Even though a ghost shows up, it's not, nevertheless, it's about <laughs> profoundly human dilemmas and, and tragic outcomes. So it just occurs to me to wonder um, about 
our the world that we all live in at any given time as we're yeah. you know making on our journeys how do we access spirituality and not get trapped by you know dogmatic debate that's a big well i'm sure you know much more well, about that's that. oh i mean that's that that is the question that is the question you know and and mike one of my concerns is that i often see 12 step uh spirituality turn following in the same mistakes that religion follows and it becomes mechanical mm. uh, it loses access to the beyond and you just stay in the wheel over and over and over again and um, I, I mean i'm dedicating the last part of my life, uh, like Shakespeare, and I had enough of the stuckness part. Let's get to the joy yeah. and uh, let's not get stuck in the 12 steps. Let's actually take them and, and get to the life and the joy and the fun and the juice uh, that is on the other side. Wow. So, um, you know, every 500 years, someone says religion, religion goes through a tremendous transformation. Mm. And that's the time that that this play was written. Mm. And we are about 500 years or so afterwards. We are. And we are going through the same uh, difficulties. Mm. And uh, the old will not suffice. And the new is not yet here. Mm -hmm. So Hamlet is still quite relevant <laughs> oh i really think so yeah. anytime any of us are like you know should i go to the supermarket or should i stay home and do the dishes we are in fact hamlet in that moment especially if we don't make up our mind <laughs> yes yes they come back they come back an hour later you're still right. there no, done either. he's still on the couch <laughs> Exactly. Oh, well, listen, David, this has, has uh, uh, this was definitely a God thing. So uh, <laughs> I thank you for writing the email. Uh, and I thank you for uh, taking the, the, the jump of faith with me uh, mm -hmm. to, to do this thing, because I, I think uh, I couldn't have done it justice uh, without you. So thank you so, so very much. Well, what and, thank you for having me. I've yeah, tried. yeah. And uh, the book is, is Transformation by Robert Johnson. Almost any one of Robert Johnson's books out there are, are really uh, deeply spiritual uh, in, in terms of helping you gain access to the, the inner world, the inner life, uh, and, and, but see it in a way that, uh, that you can uh, really relate to. Uh, some of the old patterns are just simply not working anymore. So anyway, uh, David, I've got a new friend. And uh, you ever get to Austin, I owe you lunch. And uh, look forward to seeing you, brother. Great. All right. Thank you. So and much. I thank all of you guys out there for listening. I hope this was uh, helpful to you. And if you flunked uh, English literature, you know, back in high school, <laughs> you made up for it. Get a hold of that teacher. Said, oh, I finally got, the, got what you were talking about there. So anyway, thanks so much for listening. God bless. And uh...